0: Let's bow and pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we ask that you would humble us this morning to receive your Word. We pray you'd strengthen us to not merely be those who hear your Word. We ask ask that you would change us to be doers of your Word. Lord, may we please you this morning as we come to worship, as we listen to your word. Lord, I pray you'd help me as your servant to seek to please you this morning, that I'd faithfully and joyfully preach your word for the glory of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Over the course of of history, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that gains mass appeal. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a popular message. And I know that may be hard to understand sometimes because we look in here and there are a lot of people and there are some large churches in Charlotte. It may be hard for us to understand that this message doesn't bring fame. Even when we think about downstairs, we have a number of books that are published by Christian authors. Many of us have heroes in faith, in the faith from throughout history. We purchase their books. We read biographies about Christian men and women who've served the Lord in the past. There's current preachers and authors that we listen to and will flock to conferences to hear. Now, I think that it's a good thing to learn from both Christians past and present. It's a blessing to be able to have those resources. Make no mistake that preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ does not lead to fame and glory. One of my pastor friends, he shared a story with me once about how he was visiting England, and he wanted to visit the church that one of his heroes of the faith preached at years ago, J.C. Ryle. He wanted to visit his church and kind of see where J.C. Ryle had ministry. Now, Ryle was a leading evangelical minister in the Church of England. He became bishop, the first bishop in Liverpool there in 1880. If you ask uh, any of our pastors about J.C. Ryle, uh, he's a hero to many of us. We enjoy his books. They're for sale downstairs. Even Pastor Jonathan named his firstborn son after J.C. Ryle. So you may hear this and think, wow, now this guy is is famous. He's esteemed in in many Christian circles. But make no mistake, again, this doesn't mean fame and mass appeal. My, My friend who went to England, he said he went to visit that church building and connected to it in the basement there was a bookstore. And he went into the bookstore and he was hoping to find some J.C. Ryle books or some sort of historical mention about J.C. Ryle serving there. And he found nothing. He looked around. He did see a poster of the music group, The Beatles, and some of their records for sale there in that bookstore. And he went up to the lady that was working there at the cash register and he asked her, he said, I'm I'm here to try to find some books by J.C. Ryle. And the way he tells it, she looked at him and said, who? A man who had preached upstairs for so long not known not there present in that bookstore which I think is fitting for Christian ministry in the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning chapter 2 we see the apostle paul as he's answering charges that are being made against him that he's just one of these traveling preachers out for fame and glory he makes it clear that Christian ministry is aimed at pleasing god that, that's the direction of Christian ministry it's aimed at the glory of god for his fame, for his renown, that his name would be exalted. And We would do well to consider that this morning as we think about the aim of this Christian ministry and our local church here at Oakhurst Baptist Church. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. This is the second week of our sermon series in First Thessalonians. If you missed last week, no worries. You can go listen to that on our webpage. If it's easy to jump in this morning, we're going to be tracking through the first 12 verses there in chapter 2. Again, that's on page 986 if you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, 986. And if you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to use that Bible this morning, and then we'd love for you to take it home with you as our gift to you, Let me read through all of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 as we begin our study this morning. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Although we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in the beginning here of chapter 2, these first 12 verses, is this. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the main idea. Christian ministry is aimed at pleasing God and reflecting His loving care. Christian ministry is aimed at pleasing God and reflecting His loving care. As we kicked off 1 Thessalonians last week, we saw most of chapter 1 being the Apostle Paul praising God for the work in the lives of the Thessalonian church. Paul was identifying evidence of God's grace, visible fruit, Maturity and growth in the Christian faith there in the lives of the Thessalonians. and this next section in chapter 2, Paul continues that thought. He wants them to build on the foundation of faith that was already there. And in this section, he lays out his motivation for ministry and gives them a model to imitate that their church might grow in pleasing God. We're going to break down this passage into Two parts. The first part we see in verses 1 through 6, motivation for ministry. And the second part we see in verses 7 through 12, models for ministry. Motivation for ministry, models for ministry is what we see here in this passage. Let's look first in verses 1 through 6 at motivation for ministry. In Paul's day, in the first century in the Roman Empire, it was common that there would be traveling teachers, philosophers, messengers. They would go from town to town teaching a message, and crowds would often form. And these teachers, they gained fame, they gained money, glory. They were out to preach messages or teach messages often that were interesting or intriguing. And if you think about the type of message that you would preach to form a crowd, often it's a message that would make much of the people around you. It'd make them think or it'd make them think much of the the preacher or the teacher, the philosopher themselves. So it was almost like a a sideshow there in the town of entertainment with a pleasing message where these teachers would end up gaining money and fame. And it seems that Paul's opponents were trying to point to his ministry and Silas and Timothy and saying, you know, don't listen to these guys. They're just another one of these kind of traveling circuses coming through town with an interesting message. They're just out for themselves. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. They're out for personal gain, and they're motivated by greed. And we see in the beginning of chapter two, it seems like the apostle Paul is defending himself from these types of charges, and he starts off by pointing to the motivation of his ministry, which is a a holy motivation. He defends his ministry by pointing to his motivation to please God. And with that, he's sharing with the Thessalonian church that should be corporately the motivation of God's people, what we all want. You see there in verse 1, Paul is speaking of the manner in which he came to them. For He says there, for you yourselves, no brothers, our coming to you was not in vain, meaning it wasn't empty. Now, later on in chapter 3, verse 5, we see the apostle Paul was saying, he was kind of sharing with them. At one time, he was nervous, a little anxious, like, Was my ministry in vain there? Was it it empty? He wondered about that. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he's saying, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But if you have a motivation to please God, your labor's never in vain. In chapter 1, we saw he was identifying evidence of God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that they were growing in faith and being an example to believers throughout the region there in Thessalonica. Well, in these first six verses, Paul defends his ministry by pointing out, we're being accused of being these traveling preachers out for selfish gain, but what exactly did we gain? This question, that's what he's pointing to. In verse 2, he reminds them of what happened to him and to his co-worker Silas right before they came to Thessalonica. They were preaching the gospel in the city of Philippi, also there in that region. They suffered there and had been shamefully treated in Philippi. You can read about their time in Philippi if you want to go back and read Acts chapter 16 later today. Acts chapter 16 is where we see that. They experienced persecution in Philippi for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was attacked there, and so was Silas. Their garments stripped off, beaten with rods, and then thrown into prison and bound with chains, their offense, their crime, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ who died on the cross to pay for sins, risen from the dead. They suffered for preaching that message. They were treated shamefully. Eventually, he and Silas were, though, freed from prison following a miraculous event of the Lord where he sent an earthquake to free them, but not before they led that Philippian jailer and his entire family to faith in Jesus Christ. You know what happened when they left Philippi, the next place they went? They went. Thessalonica. When they got to Thessalonica, the same threatening situation happened. We just heard Lee Weathers read to us from Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, the beginning of the church there at Thessalonica. They kept going on, and and at Thessalonica, we, we just heard they faced a mob there. The Apostle Paul, after preaching three Saturdays in a row, three of the Jewish Sabbaths, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ risen from the dead, A mob formed and they had to escape and leave the city by night. And Paul points to that experience, to that persecution for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as proof that they certainly were not this group of traveling teachers peddling a message for personal gain. In other words, if they were looking to profit off of the message and gain fame and gain riches, it would be clear they needed to find another message. The mission wasn't being accomplished. City after city, they were being rejected and persecuted. This message, it wasn't pleasing the masses. The gospel of Jesus Christ, certainly there were some who embraced it, but they also were facing persecution. They weren't pleasing people. They were getting thrown into prison. Yet even this persecution did not stop them from boldly preaching the gospel. We read in verse 2, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So go to Philippi, suffer, leave, preach the gospel, go to Thessalonica, suffer. They kept preaching the gospel. Why? If it was a lie, if Jesus really hadn't risen from the dead, if the Apostle Paul's testimony of being an eyewitness To the resurrected Jesus. If that was a lie, you'd think he'd come up with a new message. It just wasn't working out well for his career if that was the case. But even after suffering and being persecuted, they kept preaching the gospel. You know, we see here a characteristic of Paul's ministry that should be found in all Christian ministry. That's boldness. His ministry was characterized by boldness in proclaiming the gospel. In fact, the gospel message demands Boldness. To preach boldly means to preach fearlessly. That doesn't mean that you don't experience fear. It means overcoming fear to speak the truth about who God is in Jesus Christ. Now, where does boldness come from? Sometimes I think we hear boldness and we think, well, that's more of like a personality trait. Like certain people, you're really bold, and you're extroverted, and you don't get nervous, and you're kind of not afraid to put yourself out there, and that's, that's like the bold people. But if that's what boldness is, that means you're putting confidence in the flesh. I think, again, if boldness is expected of every Christian ministry, of, of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand where boldness comes from. Notice here the phrase, he says, boldness where? Where does it come from? In our God. In our God, meaning his boldness came from God. It wasn't a boldness found in himself and his own personality. He spoke boldly with God's help, which is good news for all of us. We can turn to the Lord and ask for help, for boldness. This message, we all confess as Christians, every member of this local church believes the same gospel. It's defined there in our statement of faith taken right out of Scripture, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, truly God and truly man. He came down to earth, not merely to be a good teacher, but to be a Savior, one who would lay his life down on the cross as a payment for sin, taking upon himself the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin against God. He nailed our sin to the cross, dying on the cross and paying for that sin. And he rose again from the dead on the third day that anyone who would repent of their sin, meaning turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven of your sin against God, united to live life with God now and forevermore in heaven. That's a message that brings us comfort and confidence As Christians, it's a message that's bigger than us. It's bigger than our stories. It's not a Western message of Western civilization. It's a message believed by people all over the globe, a message that has gone to the ends of the earth, a message that proclaims the fame not of people, but of Jesus Christ alone. In His name, in His name alone, there is forgiveness of sins. And to say that I'm a Christian means that I'm with him. I'm with the guy who got up from the dead. My my hope and my confidence is in him, not in my own good works, not in my own ability to please God. Jesus perfectly pleased God. He perfectly obeyed God in all that he did. He perfectly honored God in everything he did and said he loved everyone that he came into contact with. In other words, he did what I failed miserably at in my sin. I'm with him. I trust in him for forgiveness of sins. My faith is in Him on that final day that when I stand before God and am judged, that there'll be no condemnation for me because I trust in Jesus Christ and all that He's done is acceptable to a holy and living God. If that doesn't fire you up, if the gospel message doesn't fire you up, we all need to hear it. That's why we come together on Sunday mornings, the morning that Jesus got up from the dead, to be reminded where our confidence is. It's not in ourselves. May we find pleasure and who God is in Jesus Christ. Where does boldness come from? It comes from God. Notice even here, I love this phrase. Paul describes the message he preached as the gospel of God, meaning this gospel message came from God. God is the author of the message. It's his message. Yes, it was handed down to us by the apostles, but they didn't invent it. They didn't come up with this message They received it as eyewitnesses to the risen Lord Jesus Christ, directly from the risen Lord Jesus. And they passed it on, and it's still being proclaimed here this morning. Therefore, the power is in the message. In the face of attack and conflict and persecution, they could persevere in boldly preaching because that boldness came from God. Well, brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder what it is that keeps each one of us from boldness in evangelism. Now, we may not face being thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. Certainly, our brothers and sisters around the globe do. We heard from several who've come to this church. Yevgeny Botmutsky recently came from Russia, who was being threatened if he didn't say certain things in church, that he'd be thrown in prison there in Russia. That's humbling to hear. That's always been the case. It still is the case. I also would say just because we don't face that, doesn't mean that we don't face any form of persecution. Certainly, I think what we see in 1 Peter is more of a social form of persecution, which I think is very common to us today. We often wonder, if we share the gospel, will that mean the end of a relationship with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker? Will it get really awkward between us and a family member? Now, Thanksgiving and Christmas are kind of ruined for the foreseeable future because we're saying something about Jesus that someone disagrees with. That very well may be the case. It may get awkward. People may not be happy with our message. But having boldness in the gospel means by God's grace and with his help, we overcome fear. We ask God for his help to not shy away from the truth. It is true that if you proclaim the gospel to others, you should expect to experience a certain level of rejection. And for some of you, I know that rejection has been more hurtful and harmful in relationships in your life. And I'm sad to hear that. But we also need to know, just like what happened there in Thessalonica, when the gospel gets preached, others will receive it, others will believe it and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We should expect to see both. If all you see is persecution, maybe you are just being personally too rough in sharing things. If you don't ever see anybody who's interested in hearing more about the gospel, maybe you could examine yourself. As a messenger. If all you see is smiles on people's faces and they think it's awesome, maybe you need to examine the message you're preaching. Are you really calling people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ that He is the only way to God? He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to have your sins forgiven. Brothers and sisters, we should expect to experience both because that's just the testimony we see throughout the scriptures. There are some who will hear the gospel and they'll receive it as this fragrant aroma. It's beautiful. And by God's grace, they'll repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. And to others, it is a stench and they will want it and therefore you away from them as fast as possible. That we ask God for help and And boldness. And may we consider the power of the gospel message. I think that's the the greatest way to overcome fear and to grow in, in boldness. What other message has the power to change someone's heart? What other message has the opportunity to bring God glory and to bring deep inner joy and lasting peace through the forgiveness of sins to the person who listens and receives that message? The gospel will do the work. The Holy Spirit has always worked for the, through the gospel. He will continue to do so. It's our job, our responsibility, and our honor to proclaim the good news of Jesus. It's not our message. It comes from God, and we grow closer to him as we proclaim this message. You see, Paul's motivation, in boldness, it came from God himself. But notice, notice in verses 3 through 6, His motivation, this is really the overarching motivation in Christian ministry, it was to please God. These false teachers that were traveling from town to town were proclaiming their messages to please people and therefore to benefit themselves. But Paul, he lists out here their false motives and contrasts it with holy motives. Starting in verse 3, he says, Our appeal does not spring from error, meaning the gospel came from God. They weren't wandering from the truth. There was no impurity or moral corruption in their message, no deception. If you skip down to verse 5, there was no flattery, which is saying what someone wants to hear in order to gain something. There was no greed in this ministry. Again, if they were out for personal profit, they were failing miserably. The false motivations continue in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You see, all those false motivations have no part in Christian ministry. So what was his motivation in ministry? It's kind of sandwiched there in the middle in verse 4. We see there the heart and the motivation for all Christian ministry there in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests Our hearts. Paul points to his approval not coming from people, but coming from the throne of God above. He was concerned about the approval of God first and foremost. In being free from seeking the approval of man, it led him to boldness in preaching the message. Oh, brother and sister in the Lord, I wonder where it is you find yourself looking for approval from others. Maybe that's just approval, that you want to be known as a Christian in the workplace and, and also respected and thought well of and spoken well of. Maybe approval from unbelieving family members, that you want them to think, hey, even though you, you preach this message, they may disagree with you, you're a likable person, that you're just out for their good. Where is it that you're looking for approval from people and not from the Lord? Well, the Christian motivation for whatever we do should be to please God. That's our aim. We're united in that effort and in that desire and motivation. Not having a mentality of what brings me pleasure, what brings pleasure to God. Give yourself to that. God will be pleased and you indeed will find joy in that. Well, I wonder how often we find ourselves doing what Paul says they did not do. Seeking to please people. Again, we we often, it's part of our our flesh, our sinful desires and temptations. We often want people to speak well of us, to think well of us. We may be tempted to, to desire recognition, to want to be noticed. And if you think about that, it's really not only a sinful way to live, but it's also really foolish. Because if we want to please people, we will probably accomplish that. And that will be our reward. People will be pleased with us. And how long will that reward last? But for a moment. <laughs> if someone's pleased of you and they think well about you, that may last for just even a few minutes and their mind's going to go on to thinking about something else, like the spy balloon or something else that's going on in life. They're not going to be thinking about you anymore. As human beings, we tend to be so self-focused. Even if we focus on somebody else, we're going to be right back to thinking about ourselves and wondering what people think about us it's just, it's a foolish pursuit and if we pursue it the danger is we'll probably get it you see there's a freedom in life and a freedom in ministry when you embrace the reality that the one that you and i must please is the lord we can ask ourselves is god pleased with how we're living is god pleased with what we've said is God pleased in our evangelism? Maybe the person who received the good news from us isn't pleased, but was God pleased in that moment? Did we honor Him? Did we show love for Him and love for the person that we were speaking the truth of the gospel to? God is the one who tests. That means examines. He examines our hearts. He knows our every thought. He knows our every motivation. What it means to fear Him is to live before His throne above, to consider that God sees and knows everything. What it means to fear Him is to recognize that reality and therefore to seek to please and to honor Him. Now, How would it make a difference in your life this week to be freed from worrying about people and pleasing them and to devote yourself anew to seek to please God and to bring Him glory. But for those who put their faith in Jesus, we have confidence in Jesus that we have been approved by God. Romans 8.1 is, is where, one place you read that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death that God is indeed pleased with you if you put your faith in Jesus. He sees Jesus, His blood having covered you and your sin. In another letter, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this this truth of Jesus making us acceptable to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of, of God. Jesus took our sin, Christian you've trusted Him, He took our sin by dying on the cross and putting it to death. He rose from the dead in victory on the third day. And for those who put their faith in Him, His righteousness has been counted as ours. His perfect life, which God is pleased with and He accepts, it's counted as ours, meaning it's credited to our personal account. And therefore, we can stand before God now And on that last day, with our confidence in Jesus, that we've been accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning we rest in Christ. We rest in His victory through Jesus. God approves of us, and therefore we can live freely for His glory. And if you do not know that freedom of having been set free from your sin, and being free to live a life for God and His glory. If you've come this morning and you want to know more of what it looks like to be a Christian, to turn away from your sin, and to trust in Jesus Christ, that is something you can do and should do today. We'd love to talk with you more about that. Talk with any of our members who brought you. Our pastors will all be at the different doors on the way out. We'd love to share more with you about what it would look like to become a Christian, to turn and trust in Jesus today. And brothers and sisters in Christ, may we pray that our ministry as a local church centers more and more around us seeking to please God together. Well, the motivation is set in verses one through six. And the next verses in verses seven through 12, we see models for ministry. Verses seven through 12, models for ministry. another charge of Paul's opponents that he seems to be defending himself against, they seem to be saying, well, they don't really care about you all. Paul's co-workers, they don't really care about you Thessalonians, they're just in it for themselves. And Paul answers this by describing his ministry using two images, a mother and a father. And those familial relationships, they describe the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we say brothers and sisters. That might sound odd to someone who's not a Christian. or Maybe if you're a newer Christian, why are we calling each other brothers and sisters? Well, that that metaphor of the family is what we see used there to describe local churches in the New Testament. And Paul actually uses these two images, mother and father, to show his care there for churches. These images, they serve of models of what loving care and commitment looks like in the local church. Let's look at this first image of a gentle mother in verses 7 and 8, a gentle mother. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, you were ready, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. The Thessalonian church was a new church, New believers, they needed to be nurtured, they needed to be fed spiritually, they needed tender care to help them mature and grow, just as a mother would give to her newborn babe to mature and to be provided for, to grow. That phrase there, but we were gentle among you, is a contrast to what we see at the end of verse 6. They could have made demands as apostles of Christ, they could have been burdensome there to the Thessalonian people, but they were gentle among the Thessalonians, gentle like a nursing mother. Now, it may seem odd at first for a man to be describing himself as a nursing mother, right? The Apostle Paul is saying, hey, I was like a nursing mother among you. That may seem odd at first. Why did he choose that image about his ministry of the Thessalonians? But consider how this image communicates a model of love and gentleness and provision. What a beautiful picture of Devotion. A mother devoting herself to caring for her babe by nurturing and feeding and providing for her baby. A nursing mother caring for a newborn babe, it's a picture of gentleness and love and tender care. A nursing mother sacrifices time to nurture and care for her newborn babe. This sets a model for the church. It sets a model for how pastors are to teach and to shepherd with gentleness and love. It sets a model for how more mature Christians are to care for other members of the church to help them grow and mature. We follow a, a gentle and loving, caring God, and we too must show this gentleness and love and care in our relationships in the local church. So together as Christians, we must display this gentleness in our everyday lives to your spouse, this gentleness to your children, this gentleness to your co-workers and whatever authority you have there. Now, verse 8, it expounds on what it means to be like a nursing mother caring for her own children. Paul describes what his ministry looked like, that they shared not only the gospel of God, but look at what it says, but also our own selves. So not only did they not receive material support, which we'll get to in a moment, They didn't receive material support from the Thessalonians, but they also offered all they had, their very lives, to the people there in that church. Again, that tells us something about Christian ministry. Christian ministry involves sharing the gospel and sharing your life. It is loving to share the truth of the gospel, and it is loving to share your life. A nursing mother, think about her and how she shares her life with her baby. When you're nursing a baby, where mom goes, the baby goes. And that's not always convenient, right, moms? It's not always convenient. It's not always convenient as well to wake up at 3 a.m. when a baby is hungry. So it's not like it's always like, wow, this is awesome. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that is fueled by love and devotion. We think about how this compares to to Christian ministry. it, It means it requires sacrifice to care for a nursing baby, putting your life on hold for the good of another, making your plans in light of what is needed from the other. Isn't that what a a nursing mother does for her her babe? I I remember when we, my wife and I took road trips back when we had babies. Uh, I love like getting from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Of course, I never go over the speed limit. But you know, get on the road, let's go, let's get there. And it was an adjustment when we had nursing babies, like nothing went fast. So I realized very quickly my wife couldn't nurse our baby while I was driving 70 miles an hour down the interstate, try to get there. We had to pull over. It wasn't safe, right, to be riding in the car, neither one of them in a seatbelt. So we would have to pull over, and you'd have to adjust your schedule to when that little newborn needed to eat. And trips took probably like an hour, an hour and 15 minutes longer. You You just had to stop. You had to pull over. It took time. You can't rush in feeding a baby. It's not like, all right, like, gulp this down real quick. It took time. You you couldn't rush it. We had to adjust life to meet the needs of this little newborn baby. It's just like Christian ministry. Christian ministry takes time. You can't rush people's growth and maturity. Caring for others in the local church, people caring for us, us caring for others, it requires a patient love that shows itself through ongoing care. Now, why does a nursing mom sacrifice so much for her baby? Why did she put her life on hold? Why did she wake up 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. to feed this hungry little one? Well, because that little baby's loved. And the Apostle Paul shared his life for the same reason. Look there at his motivation at the end of verse 8. Because you had become very dear to us. Church family, we should pray that we view people in our church more and more the way that Christ views them. All who belong to Christ, He views them with compassion and care and devotion and protection. He views them as dear, beloved ones. It's a model for Christian ministry. Elders, we, we should pray for a, a love and affection for the people of our church, that we would set an example in that and showing care and love for those we minister to, that together our church would be characterized by this loving concern. For others. Well, what does this look like practically? Well, I think this type of care, it requires relational proximity. Again, nursing a baby requires that that baby, like mom, is with the baby, right? You have to be, there has to be a relational proximity. You can't show tender care to others or receive it if you aren't in relational proximity to other members of this local church. So why do we talk about church membership here? Why do we have membership classes? Well, church membership means that we're committed to one another. And a commitment shows itself in knowing other people, knowing simply, but who are the members of this church? Who is it I'm living in covenant fellowship with? You need to know who it is you're in fellowship with and then know one another well enough to know each other's needs and therefore how to move towards one another. And as our church has grown and is growing larger, that means that you and I must take the initiative both to know others and to make ourselves known to others, both to give that practical care and spiritual care and to be able to receive it generously from others. What that means again practically, you know, try to be here at the multiple gatherings of this church. Try to come again tonight. Sunday night, 5.30 p.m., we're going to pray. It's another chance for our church family to gather together. Get in a discipling relationship. If you're having trouble with that, reach out to Jonathan Morgan. Pastor Jonathan Morgan, has emails in the bulletin. He'd be happy to share with you some ways or give you any help, or any of our elders, for that matter. We'd be happy to help you with that. Join a community group. If you're not already a part of being in relational proximity by being in a community group, talk to Pastor Tim Gosen. It's a great way to know in your schedule at least twice a month built in to be with other members, talking about the Bible, praying, and trying to share life with one another. Invite someone into your home. Invite someone into your schedule. Go out for a meal or coffee. Initiate that with another member. Try to live in a way where you have an open life and an open Bible with other members of this church. When you get together with someone, try try to have conversations of substance like, hey, how are you really doing? How are you really doing spiritually? Pray that our church grows in in modeling gentle and tender care for one another. Well, the second image that Paul uses as a model for ministry is in verses 9 through 12. We see a picture there of a committed father. So a gentle mother, a committed father. And we find in these verses an example of hard work, godly character, and patient instruction. Paul answered his opponent's charges by pointing to his hard work in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And though Paul, as an apostle, he had a right to be financially supported in his ministry there. We see that happening throughout the book of Acts. When he would first go to a city and he's going to a place a church didn't exist. First off, who is it that would support him there and provide for them financially to preach the gospel uh, but also it meant that they weren't going to put that in a way where any opponent could try to discredit their message and to say, hey, they're just out to get money here in this city. So they decided to work day and night, meaning that they were kind of working to provide them for themselves, likely making tents or something like that. And they would go and preach the gospel to be able to do that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't look at this and think, well, missionaries should be cut loose from financial support of the church and they should just go get jobs overseas to support themselves. Uh, those we support in Wales and in Turkey and in Northern Ireland. That's not what this means. Uh, it doesn't mean that all pastors should be bivocational bi- and go work other jobs to provide for themselves. The norm we see is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, for pastors to be financially supported by the people there in their local church. And then in 3 John, verse 8, for missionaries to be supported in their work to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul simply here is saying... They chose to not make those demands. They chose to come in and simply preach the gospel to this new church. And the picture he's given there is of a providing father working hard, which tells us Christian ministry involves hard work. Being a church of providers involves hard work because you all have busy lives. You have responsibilities. You have responsibilities at home. You have responsibilities at work. And you add to that responsibilities at church, and a lot of times Christians think, well, I don't want any more responsibilities. I just want to come in on Sunday morning, and I want to sing songs that praise God, and I want to, like, get to know people, and I want to be encouraged by a sermon, and I want to move on. Well, that's not a picture of Christian ministry. Certainly, we, we hope that Sunday morning is encouraging, but together, we're joining in the work of the gospel. We've come in it to be a part of spreading the gospel throughout this city and to the ends of the earth, and that requires sacrifice and commitment and hard work. And we should pray for God to give us strength to not grow weary of doing hard work. But he gives us joy in the midst of sacrifice. Continuing on, verse 10, we see that Paul was careful to set a fatherly example of a holy and godly life. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, of, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was toward you believers. What does godliness look like? Simply put, living in a manner that's holy as God is holy, living in a way that's righteous, meaning, seeking by God's help to do what is right in a way that is blameless, that's holy living. And nothing discredits Christian ministry faster than preaching a message where our life is totally disconnected from that. Certainly from pastors that would disqualify themselves with immorality, giving themselves over to shameful things, and with members too. If somebody's surprised at work to find out that you're a Christian, something's not right there. Like together as a church, pastors, elders, members of the church, we're to hold up a holy witness. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin. It just means by God's grace, we repent. We keep repenting, keep believing. And like a father, finally in verses 11 and 12, Paul says he patiently instructed them. Look in verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's all a description of the manner in which Paul taught this young church. He instructed with the touch of a loving father. His instruction of these kind of overlap here, exhorting, encouraging, and charging. So exhorting, it's to urge, to warn, It can be easy to exhort someone without encouraging them, without building up courage and and seeking to encourage them. So instruction must come with encouragement that seeks to comfort in the Lord and to build up and find courage in Him, but it also should come with exhortation that that warns and, and urges. Isn't that what fathers do? Uh, when you're urging your child not to run out into the street to chase after a ball because they may be in a dangerous place and get hit by a car, you're not just encouraging them; you're you're warning them. Especially if they're going that direction, you're warning them to stop and to heed your instruction for their own good. We think about children and what they need, and a charge also—it's a charge—is a call to a particular direction. So that means to command with authority, to call to a. A particular task. When we think about fathers instructing children, it should involve all of these. Encouragement, exhortation, charging, and that's what Christian ministry should look like for how all of us seek to instruct one another. Sometimes children need tender words of encouragement. In fact, I've heard someone say, I think this is true, most of what you want to see happen in someone's life, and in fact this person said 80% of what you want to see happen in someone's life can likely come through encouragement. Trying to build them up. Certainly, there's a need. Children sometimes need tender words of encouragement. Other times, they need words of warning, words of correction. Fathers in the home should be careful to lead in such a way to exhort your children and urge them toward honoring God, to encourage your kids, and to build them up, and to charge them to take responsibility. And an instruction that happens from this pulpit. And the other preaching and teaching and the life of this local church and the discipling and the caring for one another it should all kind of fit and form to this manner of instruction. All of that instruction was for the glory of God. Paul wanted to please God, and he wanted others to grow in pleasing God. At the end of verse 12, we see that all of these activities of fatherly care have an end goal there. Look at what it says, that we might walk in a manner worthy of God. Walking is your way of life. The aim for every Christian is to walk through life in a manner that pleases God. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of love, to walk through life in a manner that pleases God. That's the aim for every Christian. It's the aim of Christian ministry. It's the goal of Christian discipleship. What we hope the result of our time here this morning is that we would grow in walking in a manner that pleases God. We hope that we're strengthened by God's grace and by the power of His Holy Spirit to walk this next week in a manner that pleases Him. And notice the importance here of the teaching ministry of the church to help you walk in a manner worthy of God. I think that's why one reason why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, "May we not give up meeting together or assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day draw near. It's because we're encouraged as we sit and listen to God's Word. We're encouraged as we hear the gospel taught. There's an importance built into our lives to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, something we can't recreate at home, something that this idea of online church simply can't deliver. There's really no such thing as online church. Church means to assemble so certainly if somebody has a health issue or something like that, that makes us sad that they can't come to the assembly, but we love it when people are able to come back like the Purvises are today. And be back here assembling with us. You would tell them there's nothing like being here amongst God's people for your encouragement each week. And for those of us who are able-bodied, make it a point to be here every Sunday morning. It's for your good and for God's glory. Or well, for those who've placed their trust in Jesus One day we will be with Him in heaven, consumed by His glory in the kingdom of heaven. We are on the way to glory right now, this morning. We're walking that direction. And until we arrive, we live for the pleasure of God. We live for the will of God to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And what it means to be a church is that we're a family with our arms locked together marching behind Christ and his victory, marching heavenward toward glory, each day brings us one day closer to his return or us going to be with him. Each day, each moment, we are marching behind the victory of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Each day brings us one day closer to glory until it is that day that we go to be with the Lord or until He comes to re- back to earth to gather us up as His people, we're to walk by His grace in a manner worthy of the Lord, a life worshiping Him. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, Oakhurst Baptist Church, may we pray more and ask the Lord more that we would grow in our hunger for his glory, that we would grow in our desire and our aim to please him, and that we would grow as a display, as a reflection of his loving care and kindness in Jesus. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we pray you would draw our minds to the love and the care and the kindness that you've shown us in your son Jesus Christ. You've been so merciful to us and gracious to us. You have been patient with us. You are patient with us as your children today. We pray that you would draw our hearts and minds to meditate on that truth of the gospel, that we are loved in Christ. We are sustained by him this morning. We pray that we would extend that loving care and kindness to those around us. At home, here at church, in the workplace, that we would reflect your loving care and kindness, that we would live for your glory, that we would delight more and more in pleasing you and be filled with joy as we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.